0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August the 22nd, 2022. Uh, if there's one theme in this show over the last few years, it's been economic Cultural, political inequality. I've uh, mm-hmm. done many nonfiction writers uh, over the last year. did one with the New York writer Peter Goodman on Davos Man, uh, on The Rise of the Super Rich. did something with the Californian scholar Joel Kotkin on The Reappearance of Feudalism in 21st Century America. did something with the Yale law professor da- Daniel Markovitz on the misery of our new aristocratic class did something with Kurt Anderson on the on the weirdness of uh, in, uh, of a profoundly unequal society in 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 a, in a culture a society that prides itself on its democracy uh, all this of course wrapped in the history the rise and fall of neoliberalism lots of shows about that actually next week got a show with Brad DeLong, the UC Berkeley economist slouching towards utopia and economic history of the 20th century, in which DeLong defines everything, all economic history, in terms of this rise of inequality. We haven't, though, uh, done as much non, f- uh, as much fictional work on our new Gilded Age. That's going <laughs> to change today. My guest on the show, Gene Hampf korlitz is... Very well-known, prolific American author, extremely successful. She has a new book out, The Late Comer, a novel um, which has been particularly acclaimed. The New York Times uh, loved the book and they concluded a a sumptuously wrapped gift. I'm not sure why books are sumptuously wrapped or gifts uh, but they say the late comer is a gilded age novel for the 21st century yeah that course.
1: was news to me but I was unhappy to read that
0: right and of course um, the New York Times is the gilded age newspaper for the 21st century so it's probably appropriate Gene, <laughs> that you're in that newspaper welcome Gene. Thank you. Um, uh the book has I, I been really think- acclaimed, Jean. I don't know whether you were surprised with it. I mean, it only came out a couple of months ago. You already got 2,500 ratings on uh, Amazon. You're, Is that true? Best-
1: you know, I've gone to great lengths not to look at my Amazon. You, you? never look
0: at your Amazon. Yeah, yeah. most of us I don't look, look at our Amazon because we're so unpopular. You don't look because you're popular, right?
1: You know, I just, I'm much happier not knowing somebody asked me to, actually, my husband asked me. How many copies has this book sold? I said,
0: yeah, you don't want to tell him because then he will start asking you for money. Um, <laughs> so Jean, I mean, is this a, are you, are you comfortable with the idea of this being a, a Gilded Age novel, whatever that means?
1: Well, whatever that means, exactly. I mean, when I read the, the um, Legra uh, Goodman review, which was, you know, basically the review of my life, one of those reviews that you couldn't have written it better yourself. Um, My first thought was I better go back and reread Edith Warden, you know, whom I haven't read for many, many years. It's often been the case with me that I find out what my, uh, (laughs) what my books are about when I read the reviews and people, you know, sort of people cleverer than myself or more clear sighted than myself at any rate, um, you know, define them for me. And then I say, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So, uh, maybe we're 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 condemned not to know exactly what we're doing. Maybe that's part of.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was funny last week. I did an interview with a um, woman who teaches at uh, uh, Cooney. She's a journalist uh, professor, and she's just written a book about um, a convert to Judaism in from nineteenth century Peru, who kind of thought his way into the Jewish tradition without actually knowing anything about Judaism. Mm-hmm. And maybe in a peculiar way you've done the same thing with the latecomer you've you've uh, you've you've come to uh you've come to the gilded no- novel without even thinking that you were coming to it is that fair
1: well there are plenty of other things in the novel that i i don't know much about personally i mean i'm i'm certainly not mormon and i i write a lot in this novel about mormons um Although I, it is also true that I have a fascination with Mormon history, so I think I've been looking for a place to put that knowledge and that um, obsession for for quite some time. But another example is art. I don't know very much about art, and I was really dreading uh, the the expertise. You know, I, I knew that I would need some kind of expertise to write about art the way I wanted to. And uh, I, you know, I did the classic thing. I went to somebody who knows more than I. Do. And I, who did you after, go to? I went to Steve Martin, who, you know, in addition to all the other things that he's good at, is uh, is extremely knowledgeable and passionate about art, and uh, loved the assignment, which was basically to create a fantasy collection um, assembled in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s of uh, mid to late 20th century, uh, mostly American painters who. Would have been extremely uh, unpopular and and not very valuable at the time of purchase, and would later in our time be extremely valuable. So it was almost like a like a treasure hunt, but with you know with 50 years of of uh, knowing how it all works out. So he had fun. I learned a lot, and uh, I came off <laughs> like somebody who knew
0: what i was talking about so um, yeah one of i think it was the times review said this is a novel about collecting and assessing art in other words it's a novel about taste you mentioned learning about collecting art we did a show last year with charles delheim another authority on the history of art um he has a new book out belonging and betrayal how jews made the art world modern about how jews were able to european late 19th 30th 20th century jews were able to stand inside and outside the establishment look in and out simultaneously
1: visuals i mean do do you know what i'm going to say yeah
0: that's what you know i'm like you i know what everyone's gonna say (laughs) Um, but in in all seriousness gene um the the uh the family the art collecting family at the heart of your book is jewish any coincidence there
1: no, I mean yes, entirely coincidental. Yes, they're they're a Jewish family, but it couldn't have
0: been Mormons. How many Mormon art dealers are there?
1: I <laughs> I can't answer that question, but I did read a book about the four uh, artists who really, between them, uh, created the visual iconography of the Mormon Church, and these are pictures that are in every Mormon text are in every Mormon visitor center at every historical site. I myself, non-Mormon that I am, have seen these images again and again and again. And when I read about them, I discovered that only one of the four was actually a believing Mormon. The other three were unemployed, uh, you know, commercial artists whose uh, work source had just dried up with the use of photography on book covers and in magazines. uh they sort of traded the commissions among them until they could afford not to do it anymore and that was like a huge revelation to me because the images are very very powerful so uh that was really interesting to to learn about i guess i did do some research <laughs> in this but i will tell you because i detect a british accent um that the real inspiration for this character came uh, from the British version of Antiques Roadshow, uh, an epi- mm. one particular episode that I happened to watch in the middle of the night in a hotel room in London when I was up with jet lag. And it was this, I later learned that it was a famous episode of Antiques Roadshow. I, I, so perhaps it wasn't such an incredible coincidence. Uh, it was probably part of some greatest hits um, compilation. But uh, there was this extraordinary story about a family who had brought their late father husbands uh, collection to the roadshow, And as the son and father, a uh, son and mother began to extract objects from this big plastic bag, the um the appraiser started freaking out. And what came out of the bag piece by piece was apparently a completely extraordinary collection of English silver. And you would think that this widow and son uh, would be happy to hear that um, that their father has been, uh, had had collected this. They they had nothing, no knowledge of it at all. Uh, but in fact, they were more and more visibly distressed. And it turned out that the father had sort of pursued this passion of his quite alone, quite apart from his family. Really, in in almost a denunciation of his family. And so this was a such a an emotional and an unpleasantly emotional experience for the the. Jean, widow. Jean, the
0: um Again, you you studied in England, so you know this better. And you're a you're a literature person. Uh, the, the British have a long tradition of writing about the absurdity and injustice and uh, the various other paradoxes of the aristocracy. You're writing about the American aristocracy in the 2020s. Is it harder, do you think, to write a to write a a satire, if that's the right word, and perhaps in some ways even if you don't seem very angry, an angry satire in America than in Britain.
1: Well, I'm not angry because I've had an extraordinarily privileged life myself. So I'm guilty, plenty. We can talk about guilt, but I'm not you angry. You can
0: be angry about everything around you still. Yeah, can't you? It's but not but your I fault.
1: find that making fun of people is more effective. Um, I, I've been plenty angry over the last four to six years. And I think a lot of that anger, you know, went into uh, the last two books, you know, The Plot and the Lake Comer were sort of written in a leapfrog fashion, even though they're they're very different books. They're they're inextricably entwined um, myself. But yeah, I mean I, I love a good takedown of, of rich and privileged people just as much as anyone else. But the novel that you just showed, The White Rose, is really my uh, excavation of at least the idea of Jewish aristocracy. So, for example, I'm a hundred percent Jewish, but my father's family and my mother's family came from different uh, worlds. Uh, one was the world of German Jews and one was the world of shtetl Jews. And that might, se- might seem like a very incidental uh, difference to most people, but to German Jews and to shtetl Jews, it Um, it was a big difference and I didn't figure that out until I was an adult and then I just became fascinated by it so I really um, wanted to explore the idea of Jewish aristocracy and and I and
0: and these uh, Oppenheimers uh, the FT review says they they have it all and of course as in all literature when they seem to have it all they have nothing Uh, (laughs) did the the Oppenheimers come from personal experience from people you know from your background growing up in New York
1: I certainly knew plenty of, of, of German Jews, but um, the Oppenheimers, I mean, the decision that led to the, there being the Oppenheimers was um, an interest in this historical figure, Joseph Oppenheimer, who was, you know, a real person in 18th century Stuttgart, and he was uh, tried and convicted and murdered, and his corpse was hung for years in a in a gibbet outside the town gates of Stuttgart and and as, if that weren't bad enough you know 200 years later almost exactly 200 years later he was revilified by Goebbels in a in a documentary well was I mean obviously it wasn't documentary in a film propaganda film called youd Zeus so I was interested in this guy and I wanted to make my American 21st century family his descendants um, in real life, he had no descendants, no living descendants, but this is fiction, and uh, I got to give him some.
0: Do you see yourself coming out of a particular tradition of Jewish writers or Jewish literature? I don't mean to sound too really much of a Nazi here.
1: I think if you're aware of it, you you probably come from it in some way. I mean, uh, I've certainly done my best to read every novel of note by at least the early Jewish American writers. I don't speak other languages or read other languages, so my, you know, my reading begins and ends with English and with books and translation, but, you know, if you're part of a historical miracle, um, you know, if, if you have survived into the 21st century as a Jewish person, I think you owe it to to your forebears to understand their lives, and I've always, you know, learned about people's lives through fiction. Uh, particular
0: you... writers come to mind?
1: Well, I was I was just about to say that I think I grew up in a pretty much a, a non-believing, non-practicing uh, family and community, um, and I learned about being Jewish from books. And I think between Erica Jong and um, uh, Chaim Potok, who wrote. Uh, well, many wonderful novels, but My Name is Asher Lev, in particular, a very, very formative book for me. Um, that's how I learned about being Jewish. It didn't make me a whit less of an atheist, but it made me fully Jewish in terms of, you know, my understanding of where where I am in the world and how I got here.
0: In terms of the vehicle of the book, the family is the vehicle. Um, the New York Times uh, is a- refreshed by the fact that the siblings in your book loathe each other um what is it about the early 21st century family that make it such a yeah again maybe uh the the word is uh i don't know uh easy i wouldn't say an easy target because i don't want to i don't want to undermine your work but a a a target that um seems in, in in retrospect at least to be obvious
1: I, I'm not sure that it's so much a target as the fact that we all have families. I mean, we may have terrible families, we may have, um, you know, unusual families, we may have traditional families, but we all have one, and you know, they're all complicated. So, um,
0: but some more than others, and one of the, one of the features I think of our gilded age. I mean, according to sociologists, is that wealthy families stay together, whereas others don't.
1: Mm yeah i feel like you'd need to i'd need to be an economist or a sociologist to
0: but you see it all around you i mean how many
1: well, sure. well people stay together because they sense that their survival is together whether that's you know economic or or whatever uh you know we're <laughs> we're 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 trying to buy an apartment right now and we were just you know hearing about you know all the family members waiting for the deal to go through. I shouldn't say that, but um, yeah, I guess there are lots of good reasons to stay in a family, even if you uh, aren't, it isn't fueled by love purely.
0: Education features very centrally in, in in your narrative. Again, we've done so many shows on the injustices, the paradoxes, the hypocrisy of education, the way in which, for example, Ivory Tower bankers are plundering our universities and the way in which wokeness has sort of become the reigning orthodoxy in Ivy League universities uh, mm-hmm. and the role of competitiveness, of pleasant competitiveness in getting into these universities. That's What's my your...
1: you just showed. You know? Sorry? That's my college you just showed. My which is college. that? Dartmouth.
0: Right. So um, how important do you think education, and particularly colleges are, in terms of reifying the inequalities, the ideological, not just the economic, but the ideological assumptions, the way of thinking uh, in in the America of our age?
1: I, I actually have a different view of it. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a little bit rose-colored glasses um, in comparison to the way you're describing it, but I have always seen elite universities in particular, not only elite universities, but universities um, as a kind of magical portal through which young people can change their lives and change their social class. And of course, we're not supposed to have social class in this country, Um, but of course we do. So, um, you know, there's a phrase in Brideshood Revisited, where Charles Ryder describes the low door in the wall uh, as a kind of magic door to a different world that he discovers at Oxford. And he is talking about um, an elevation in society, although to to our American eyes, he's already pretty elevated. But of course, there are are echelons above him. Um, I've always seen the magic of these wonderful colleges and universities as being particularly you know potent for people who, who did not have that automatic conveyor belt towards towards college. I mean that's why I'm obsessed with Ivy League admissions. I have been since I went through it myself. I was uh, an outside reader for Princeton uh, when I wrote my novel Admission. Um, I still freelance for a college counselor because I you know I just love it. I love to work with her students. And I make myself available to just about anybody who figures out how to get to me and needs, uh, and is from you know an underserved community, an underserved school, doesn't have a college counselor, but wants help with their essays. If they get to me, I help them. Um, because I really believe that part of the mission of these elite institutions is to find those kids and help them. And I, like I said, I know it's very Pollyanna-ish, but I have been on the inside of it. And I know that there's no passion like the passion of finding a brilliant kid who has had no advantages at all and being able to offer them a spot at one of these colleges. I'm not saying the other stuff doesn't happen. I'm sure it does. But that happens too.
0: Um. We did a show. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Fiona Hill. She was one of the big critics of Donald Trump. She has a, her own autobiography out about the increasing Russian way of life in America. It seems as if your kind of critique is, in in some ways, I I'm not an expert on Edith Wharton, but there's certainly something of the 19th century about your work, which in some ways perhaps reminds one of of Russian novels of reminding their reader of the absurd- They may remind
1: you, but they couldn't remind me because I really haven't read very many at all. I mean, I I think I choked my way through Brothers Karamazov in high school, but uh, that was just not for me. But maybe it's
0: just coincidental then that you're writing at a time of such radical inequality in America, whereas Russia in the 19th century was um, equally unequal.
1: It's all felt pretty unequal all the way through to me. Are there
0: fixes, solutions in your book? I mean, novels, it's not like nonfiction where you always have to have a final chapter where you you conclude about how to whatever problem you're writing about, how to fix it. Do you feel that fiction writers have an obligation to come up with fixes or you don't think that's really your business?
1: You know, I, I I love that you think we're even capable of that any more than anybody else. I mean, I think... The only thing that I've ever sort of done consciously is put forward characters who despite their weirdnesses and their unkindnesses and their cruelties somehow manage to to leave the world a little bit better. I mean, this novel actually may not be the best uh, Example of that. But I remember the novel that I wrote after 9 11, um, which was not the novel I was writing before 9 If we can
0: get to that one, it was this.
1: It's called The White Rose, and it's based on. Uh, there we the,
0: are, Naya 2004 Passion, Infidelity, Social Climbing, and one very special White Rose.
1: Right. That was the novel that was about Jewish aristocracy, but it was also based on an opera, an opera called De Rosen Cavalier. And, you know, Full disclaimer: I am not an opera person, much to the much to the sadness of my mother, who is. But I love this one opera, Rosen Cavalier, and what I love most about it, and it's a it's a kind of a, a comedy tragedy about uh, infidelities and uh, basically a, a love triangle set in 18th century Vienna, which in my version becomes uh, 20th century New York City right before 9-11 basically. Um, but the the thing that I always loved about the story is that all three of these characters who are in a position to do great harm to one another, their greatest priority is is not to do that, is to lead with kindness and to, um, to just show their best selves to the other two. And that I felt was what I wanted so desperately after 9-11 to sort of dwell on characters who, you know, who basically first do no harm. And because there was, you know, so much harm around us. And so, you know, there are are times of great stress and sadness where something in you just kind of reaches for the good in people. So maybe I've done that consciously, but I can't say that these motivations that you describe um, come close to the motivation of telling a good story, and writing well. Those are, you know, those are hard enough. Sorry for the New York soundtrack.
0: So you think that asking questions on politics are not the right questions to ask a novelist? Uh,
1: Certainly there are novelists who just love to dig around in this stuff, and, and it is a big priority for them. Um, I, 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 I feel like my opinions are, you know, they're very passionate, but if I were going to make those opinions the priority of of what I wanted to communicate, I probably wouldn't be writing fiction. Um, yeah. I did vote yesterday, though. Sorry? (laughs) I did vote yesterday. I changed and, and,
0: yeah, You know, I saw a piece in the Times, you had a satirical piece about Trump. <laughs> you talk about America after 9-11. Do you think we're living in a similarly sort of post 9-11 time, post something?
1: I, I, I don't think 9-11 was the turning point as far as our present difficulties. I think Newt Gingrich was the turning point. I think Newt, uh, Newt pointed to the rock. Trump lifted the rock, and all of these horrible things crawled out from under the rock, and they they are with us, and you can't talk to them. They are—they have different brains than we do. They cannot be persuaded. I mean, before before the pandemic, I would have said, you know what would really fix this? You know what would really cut through all of this political vitriol? I know, a pandemic. That, that was so apolitical, that was uh, united us all as human beings and human bodies, equally susceptible to the same microorganism, that, that would make all of us look at one another and say, okay, we may not agree about guns and abortion, but you're a human being, and I'm a human being, and let's work it out. Then we had a pandemic, and that is not what happened. So, you know, it, it causes me great despair. I mean, I, I, I don't know how we come back from this.
0: What about the role? I, I won't keep on asking the same question. I apologize. But um, what about the role of, of writers? You're also involved in pop-up book groups. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, you're a believer in books, in reading, in literature of one kind or another. What do you think the role of reading is in, in overcoming some of the... Divisions, the unpleasantries of of, of America in the twenty twenties. A lot of people have talked about bringing people back together. Do you think that that might be one? And I use this word carefully. Maybe writers don't have responsibilities, but could that be a responsibility of writers to get no, everybody think, on the I don't same know if it's page?
1: responsibility, but it is so important. I mean, look, look, look what reading fiction does to us. It makes us see through the eyes of somebody else you know think how many how many non-jewish 14 year old girls and frank's diary has has impacted just inviting somebody to experience her experience and imagine what would that be like for me you know how would i how would i get through that how would i survive that i mean that's why that's the great gift of fiction to teach us about people who are so different from ourselves. I crave books, novels about people who are different from myself. I even read the Turner Diaries. I mean, that's how much I wanted to understand what somebody, you know, having that experience uh, would be like, how how they would think. And I, you know, I've, it's a terrible novel, but I did learn a lot from that. So I think fiction can accomplish what a million diatribes, political diatribes, or sermons or polemics can't do. Just asking somebody to see the world through somebody else's eyes is just incredibly effective.
0: What do you think um, a writer from the other, uh, sorry, not a writer, a reader from the other America would learn about the other America from reading about the Oppenheimers in The Latecomer? (laughs)
1: uh, that being rich doesn't protect you from tragedy, that being rich doesn't make you a good person, that being rich doesn't, uh, and privilege doesn't mean that you necessarily have certain political views, um, that you can fumble your privilege just as easy as you can suffer from not having privilege. I mean, I'm sure we all love to read about, uh, people who have every opportunity just squandering their opportunities. That's you know, that's why I've never apologized for writing about rich people. Also, it's fun, so.
0: But do you think people who would read The Late Comer wouldn't wanna be rich?
1: Well, I, I don't think it makes you happy necessarily being rich, although um, every one of those kids in that family has has benefited from their, their comfort and their privilege. Um, but they may be using that privilege as a starting point to do different things. I mean, even in this family, we have one child, adult child, who's a Fox News pundit, and another who cleans out putrid houses for a living. So it's not coming from the same place, in that case, the same Petri dish does not guarantee that you are going to, you know, live on Fifth Avenue and dine at the Harvard Club.
0: So it really is then uh, a novel about a, a real American family?
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, they don't get any more American than than the Oppenheimers.
0: Well, there we have it. Gene um, Hampf Coralitz is, uh, I'm sure it's a bestseller, The Latecomer, a novel. It's on everyone's lips. They're going to make it into, I'm sure they'll make it into a movie. Jean, um, would you look forward to that?
1: Yeah, that it's been adapted as a limited series.
0: Your work's often been translated across mediums. Uh, I, I, do you feel that they usually keep the subtlety of your work? Can it be maintained and on television, on the screen?
1: Uh, So far, no. Uh, but... <laughs> one hopes uh, both the plot and the latecomer comer are being developed for television I'm not knocking the the two that were made they were both terrific in different ways uh, you know the undoing was a lot of fun to watch although it was very different from the book that I yeah. that was, um, but I'm I'm very excited about these two and, and if
0: the screenwriter is watching what 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 should they maintain from the book
1: Um. The plot would be
0: nice. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, you can't. I mean, can you?
1: Uh, You know, I think what's going to be particularly difficult with the plot, which is about basically a failed writer, is really conveying the intense pain and suffering of being a writer, which Mm. uh, has always, you know, has traditionally been portrayed by watching somebody pull a sheet of paper out of their typewriter, crumple it up, and throw it into a waste paper basket which is a cliche that i have banned from from the adaptation so now it'll be up to the writers to find a way to really convey the frustrations and and the jealousies and the petty you know self-loathing and all of this no, stuff well,
0: i'm sure you've never done that Jean, because you are a successful writer best-selling writer the late comer a novel congratulations remember,
1: the, the plot was my seventh novel and you know really nobody had ever heard of me until that so I've been a you know a mid-list writer for most of my career and I was actually absolutely- quite an
0: achievement most people would give their eye teeth to be a mid-list writer
1: that's true that's true I've been very fortunate and I've I've been especially fortunate in my agent and my editor who continue to believe in me even after I failed to make any money for many many
0: who, who are you who's your agent and editor
1: my agent is Suzanne Gluck and my editor is Deb Futter and they they know me too well. So um
0: Well yeah, you they, can't they, give they, them all the credit. You gotta have done something. It's a wonderful book, The Late Comer Novel yeah. Jean. Congratulations. What else uh, are you reading? I'm sure you're an as you said earlier, you're an yeah. avid reader.
1: Well, I was prepared for this question and I am I am reading this um, memoir, posthumous memoir by Mary Rogers, who is the daughter of Richard Rogers, and it's co-written with Jesse Green, who's the New York Times theater critic. And I am having so much fun with this book. It is such a delight. It has uh, many, many footnotes on every page, and they are so much fun. I wonder what the audiobook version is going to do with those footnotes, but um, uh, it, I, I can't recommend it enough. And apparently, its it's been very difficult to get because so many people wanted to read this book and all the stores sold out. Uh, But now apparently a new shipment is heading for the stores.